What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to Patreon.com slash LastStandMedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan, the gold mine in Moriarty. Dagan, <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. How are you? You always go in a, a direction I'm not expecting. I really always throw a curveball. I never know. Yeah, I never know. What to, I never know what to say. Sometimes it's going to be a character. Sometimes it's going to be some sort of referential, you know, gold mining, somewhat of a reference. Makes sense. To, to Ninja Scroll. Yeah, I go in directions that I often don't expect as well. It's good to uh, it's good to be be here with you. So what's going on in your life? What's uh, catching up a little bit? How's everything going? How do you feel? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, oh, this is a perfect uh, time to do my um, my my only impression. The only impression I could do. Literally the only impression I could do. Not well. I didn't say I did. It's pretty it good. Well. It's pretty good. Not bad. It's no. It is well. That's a that's an older one. I mean, that's one you've broken out. That's been a while. To, yeah. since i've broken out bob but uh you know i was thinking about food man i was thinking about you too because i haven't talked to you about this in a little while but you and i historically were on the same wavelength with this as far as eating habits during the day like it occurred to me i don't eat i don't really don't eat anything at all until like 2 two thirty in the afternoon I, i'm just not hungry and it's sort of a domino effect because as you and i have discussed many times and I think you're still the same way. I get I get hungrier the more the day wears on. So in the evening, into the night, I'm a night owl anyway. And for some reason, just as the day progresses, I get hungrier. Morning, not at all. Not hungry. Just not never hungry. Going out to breakfast is never a great thing for me because I'm never really feeling it, you know? And then, so 2.30, I, for, I pretty much force myself. I'm getting a little hungry, but I force myself to eat something because if it gets any later towards dinner, I, I won't want to eat dinner, right? So I make myself a sandwich or a bowl of cereal. If I have to go through the motions in the AM hours, it's just like drudgery. You know, I'm just like, oh, like choking down a bowl of cereal. I'm not really hungry. But then dinner time, great. Satiated for a little while. And then even after dinner, an hour or two, I get hungry until that, that hunger just keeps ramping up until I go to sleep. And I usually go to sleep pretty late, you know, in the certainly in the AM hours, any, anywhere between 12 and 3, 3 AM. But I eat so much at night. It never stops. It's like a snowball effect, right? So in the morning, I wouldn't be hungry because I ate so much the night before. <laughs> but I realize it's probably not healthy for my metabolism. I'm getting a little older now. I'm in my early 30s, right? 
So I have to start. I'm not in my 20s anymore, Kyle. So I just think I have to see see if I could find a way, like if I could just hold off eating at night, especially late at night, maybe I will be hungry in the morning. I don't know for a fact. I don't even know how interesting this is to discuss. But this is what's on my mind. You asked for it. No, that's... So no, that's, I want, I'm going to do fun. a little experiment where mm. I cut it off. Like, let's say I stop eating anything, like no chips, cheese and crackers, whatever I eat at night, right? <laughs> my nuke, like a microwave burrito, could be an all-out nice. meal, leftovers, whatever. Nachos. Sure. I know you're a big nachos guy. Stop at 10. Let's say I go to bed at 1, one thirty. Will that have an effect? Rather than eating until 2 in the morning, you know, watching Curb Your Enthusiasm and eating, stuffing my face until literally I lay down on the pillow. You know, it's like... Stuff your face, brush your teeth, lay down. It's 2 a.m. Got to stop. And you know what? Watching things plays a big part too. You know, mm. if I'm not watching a show or a movie or something, I'll be less likely to eat. Like maybe be a little more productive at night. Mm. Right? I don't know. You got to be, you got to show what do you a little think bit. about it's, all this. Well, it's, first of all, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. And I always feel like it's a shame because breakfast food is so fine. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so fine. You know, at, french toast and eggs and pancakes and bacon it's all good stuff but i don't get hungry either like the idea of me eating when i wake up is nauseating oh like, it's the I worst even, it's it's like i don't mind hungry what the hell are you talking and then there are people that like wake up and they're famished like, oh like wake up and like she has to eat yes and i'm like well, what it's it, it just it's so um, i believe them it's just so foreign to me because it's not the way i operate but no i'm pretty much on the so ramon was just here for a couple days oh he already came yeah, he was here and he's he just left. I just Ramon. put him in an Uber right before we started recording. Nice. Ramon. Ramon. And so the last couple of days I've been a little thrown off. You know, we've been drinking and eating a little bit more freely and stuff. But typically I don't eat anything until 730 or 8 at night. Holy and shit. Then, all day. Yeah. I go all day until 730 or 8. Wow. And then I eat a massive meal. Right. Like I feast like Micah cooks every uh, Micah cooks <laughs> and read the and right, so she like, cooks. yeah, right. exactly. Right. She cooks. And then I always make things in this. I love making things in the sandwiches. I always reduce things in the sandwiches. So it's like, you know, fried chicken sandwich, pork chops sandwich, you know, obviously burgers, and beef, meatloaf, all that kind of stuff sandwich. And then I just take the cheese and, and like rolls and, and mayonnaise or whatever you need. And I just make and I make sandwiches and then we eat fries or I eat a ton of rice, okay. like which is horrible for you, white rice. I love white rice. So good, though. Like, love, love, love white rice. And, uh, you know, a vegetable on the side usually. And then I'll gorge myself. I usually have like two or three helpings okay. of whatever we're eating. Probably at least 2,000 calories of food, if not more. So you're getting and the calories. Then I, and, and then I, and I drink like a can of Pepsi or two yeah. during this time as well. And then I shut it all down. That's it. That's the end. That's it till the next day at 7, 8 o'clock. Right. Now, I would say half the time I'll keep the window open for like another hour and then i'll have like some cashews or cookies okay or something. yeah a snack but the window is the eating window if the eating window in my life on a normal day is open more than 90 minutes to two hours that's really bizarre and then i just don't eat calories for 22 to 23 hours in any way that's and amazing that's, and that's the way it's called omad i've talked about it a, a ton i'm sure people are tired of hearing about it yeah but yeah i really live and die by this because it feeds into it here's what it does I'm not hungry to do like, you know, when they say like eat breakfast, it's really important. Eat lunch or whatever. I'm like, I'm not hungry. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have to wor I don't have to worry about right, that. No, I love food. I love to. Everyone loves food, but I love to eat and I'm I'm not going to watch what I eat. 
Yeah. So I think part of the uh, part of what dieting, like why people break when they diet is like, I got to watch what I eat and do this. And I'm like, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to eat whatever I want once a day. And then I'm going to blast my ass on a fucking elliptical for 45 minutes. So you're exercising now. This is key. Yeah. So I like I'm actually working a little backwards because Ramon was here today. I'm usually this is usually the last thing in the day I would do is record. This is like the first thing I'm doing. Actually, I still have to work out. But typically I lift and I do my elliptical and all of that. And so the whole mixture is to try to keep myself from becoming obese without having to make any major choices. Yeah. About like the choice I've made is like, OK, I can, I'll eat whatever I want and I don't have to have anything else before that. That is so like I don't have to snack on the graze, no lunch, no cheating, no cheating. Right? Like, OK. And I don't drink coffee. I don't. That's the thing. You don't even drink coffee. So it's like you have nothing. Just just water. Water. Just water water. until that meal. Right. And then I and you know what the other thing is, is I I look forward to and I work towards that meal. I it's funny. Like I when I was in college, I used to. um, I'm a man who likes to reward myself at the end of something. I've always put I've always put a carrot at the end of the stick for myself. And often in college and it used to be like, you know, smoke a joint, smoke a blunt. And I literally used to. Like before I did my homework or like sometimes I'd like roll a blunt and I'd like leave it in the bathroom on like the ledge of the of the with a lighter on the bathtub. And then I would sit and do my work and like that was the reward. And I would like carefully write my papers and get everything organized and go to the library to print things or whatever. And then when I got home, I was like, that's done. And I would just because we had to hide the smell of it, I would always smoke in the shower. And so I would I would just get right into the shower and just smoke my blunt. That was your treat. And right. And so so meals. Like my big meal is that's like my treat for like, did you exercise? Because if I didn't exercise, if I take that rare day off, I feel guilty that I took that day off. So I, I rarely take a day off from from working out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how well it's working. You look amazing. I don't think you've ever looked Thank better. You. I mean, you just look healthy. We talked about it. When did we talk about this? Oh, on the uh, Generation Kill episode, like the physique like having a physique of like a marine but some of the dudes are really buff but some of them just looked fit you know what i mean like you look like you could fit in like with a to me like a marine platoon like you wouldn't you look it. strange you heard it here right that's right that's right you would just Semper blend five. right in with those dudes you wouldn't be the most buff dude no but like me i'm like i'm too thin for that you know what i mean i wouldn't fit in really well with those with those dudes i like i mean you have a foolproof plan and it works for you that my only question is later on and and i love you know i love the reward system or the payoff where it's like time to eat enjoy yourself maybe talk to micah decompression time take time away from work or away from the screen especially you but the only caveat i could see and maybe it's not even an issue is later on as the afternoon wears away to, you know, evening, five, six o'clock, four, five, six o'clock, do you find yourself getting hungry and having to hold off then? Yeah, I, I get I get start getting anxious. I start really looking forward to it. Okay. Like the the it, it, it's true, like from I try to kind of time things so that I'm actively doing things like in the in the hours leading up to like four or five, six. Like I try to not be sedentary at that time because that is like when i'll rarely bend and be like all right i'm just gonna have a few cashews or something like <laughs> yes if, if i can, if i can make it to like six or six thirty then i'm like oh you're you're already fine. there yeah and then so but i i do admit that you know life revolves around that seven thirty hour i like in it a lot of ways i like that yeah. that's the that's a proper way of doing things this way you have something to look forward to built into your day very smart 
I think you did. That's Thank a you. lesson for everybody out there, I think. It is a lesson. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right, Dake. Ready? Let's talk about the topic at hand today. All right. We're into the things you're selecting again, which is fun. And you selected the 1993 animated film Ninja Scroll. Ooh. And uh, I watched it. Actually, Ramon and I watched it last night. I took notes. Did you guys watch it? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was like, I have to, you know, I'm like, I need to fit this in somewhere. So I don't know if you're interested. I'll, I'll just do it when you go to bed or whatever. And he, he was interested. Quick so watch. Yeah, it was it was 90 minutes. It was on Hulu. It's the only place I could find it. Uh, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I'm sure you have some story about that. But so you were asking me if I remembered this film. And the answer is yes. Okay. Because I was like Ninja Scroll. I, kn- I know the name. I know it was a popular anime. But you were like, I'm, I'm going to be curious if you remember watching this. And I do. And I think what I remember about it is actually you. You and I watching this a couple of times and you knowing when. I sh- like when the bad stuff was coming and that I shouldn't watch it. And so yeah, true. To see some- young. yeah. Th- so to see some of the, and it wasn't the violence, but more of the sex and to see, so to see the movie in its entirety and kind of grasp onto those memories, I was like, Oh, I don't know that I've seen this movie in its totality because it was one of those things that was kind of like a little much in for me at that age. And I also just recall that uh, at least for me watching it and I'm like, I, and I know that there's so much perverse, anime and and manga and stuff out there but i don't i'm not exposed to it outside of people just joking about it so it's like kind of interesting to see like an anime chick's tits or to see something really dark and visceral like rape or something portrayed in in anime and all of that so so it was a really interesting watch but i also say this is like i don't really know what this movie is about like I, i was i was trying hard to pay attention to to it and i don't really get it like i know what i know like what it was about but i was i was constantly confused i, I, I feel like by the by the end i was just watching I'm like i guess i'm just going now i don't really know what's what's happening here so that was kind of my my um my first impression of it and i think it's beautiful too and i, I want to talk obviously about that but why did you want to select this particular film as you started to write out your your new uh compilation of topic ideas yeah i mean we were due for an animation topic i feel like maybe the last animation topic we did might have been into the spider-verse and that was a little while ago so i wanted to in just curating the new list which we put together our knockback list through to like the middle of january of 2022 now so i wanted to throw in some animation topics and of course we do the disney stuff do feature films some more contemporary stuff. We do the Studio Ghibli stuff, which is like a band apart for me. And we're, we're going to do another Ghibli film. I think our next one might be Howl's Moving Castle. I think I added it later on in the fall to this list. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the list. Yeah. But I wanted to do another animated film and see if I could grab something that was of interest, but maybe something that we could introduce to some of our, our viewers. I was very interested to see if you would remember it because this was deep in my very pretty early anime rotation as far as like going to the conventions in the early to mid 90s, getting the OAVs. I have a great story about how I got this movie actually. And, you know, a lot of people really consider this one of the three sort of gateway films for Western would-be anime fans. And, you know, in fact, like, if you think of this film as, like, a gateway film in the mid to early 90s when anime was still a relatively underground thing, 
there were three sort of properties, three happened to be anime films that sort of were those sort of ambassadors from east to west. And it was Akira, of course, which we've talked about, Ghost in the Shell, Shiro's Ghost in the Shell film, which we haven't done yet, but it's another formative anime film, a must-see. And I would round out that trio with Ninja Scroll. It was one of those films that put anime on a lot of people's radar in the mid-90s. Now, it came out theatrically in Japan in 93, but a lot of people were turned on to anime through films like this because I feel like just via a little bit of the sex and violence and sensationalism, same thing with Akira and same thing with Ghost in the Shell. Um, Whether you have a samurai, traditional feudal Japan type samurai story, or whether you have something in the cyberpunk genre, I think all three of those films not only are cut above in terms of quality and maybe story and depth and all that kind of stuff, but they're also sensationalism, you know, chock full of sensationalism with sex and violence. So definitely scores points in that regard. And that, you know, makes it appeal to people. It sort of piques people's interest. And I remember this, you know, this film was on my radar very early. I saw pirated copies when it was right out of the theater. But this was definitely one of those films when I finally got to art school that this was like I saw people sort of in their formative throes of becoming anime fans. And it started with this film and a few other things. And I would argue there were other films. Neo Tokyo was one, which also has to do with this this filmmaker, uh, Robot Carnival, Appleseed maybe Battle Angel, Alita, you know, there were other formative films that were sort of, you know, basically put anime on people's radar, but this was a big one. And when I was going to, we talk about this a little bit in our, you know, when anime was underground episode, which is a very early episode of Knockback, maybe our second or third episode as far as Yeah, it's like in the, yeah, the first five, I would say, definitely, yeah. When I was going to comic book conventions and there was this guy, Bruno, he specialized in selling pirated anime so you would go to his table he had some manga he had some art books from japan he had some toys and tchotchkes maybe some model kits buttons and posters stuff like that but he specialized in selling bootleg animation tapes sometimes tv series sometimes oav sometimes feature films he had everything from like the most obscure oav all the way through studio ghibli films right and everything was 30 bucks a pop so he would dump two VHS from Laserdisc wherever possible. So the quality was usually high. He he used, usually used like very consistent like Pioneer or JVC VHS tapes, but everything was $30 a pop, whether it was a 20-minute OAV episode of something, let's say Bubblegum Crisis, or a full-on feature film like Akira or a Studio Ghibli f- a flick. So... Or, you know, an episode of Dominion Tank Police might have been 22 minutes. Everything was 30 bucks. So there was one day early on, now knowing this film came out in, you know, in Japan in June of 93, I believe. And I left for art school in February of 94. So I knew I had to get this specific bootlegged pirated tape somewhere in there. So it was probably the fall of 93. And I went to the convention one day. I would go every month. It was far from us on Long Island, all the way out in like Rockville Center, which is like, you might as well go to Manhattan. It was super far west on the island. And me and my friend Pat would go every month. We would see Bruno. He'd have, he'd have new stuff every time. And I actually found how I did it back then was there was 
a Western anime publication called Animag, which was out of Canada. And it was sort of a fan, a Western fan anime magazine, very early, very rag-like and kind of cheap production, but very passionate. This uh, woman, Trish Ledoux, was the editor of that magazine. And that's how I would get privy to things that were English language back then. But if I was feeling particularly feisty, I would go to New York, I would go to like Chinatown, and I would get Japanese anime magazines, like New Type, and I would see what was coming out in Japan at the time, contemporarily. So I, I might be a month or two behind or something. But I had never seen anything about Ninja Scroll. And I went to the convention one day, and I was looking for an OAV anime that I knew had just come out based on the NES game Ninja Gaiden, interestingly enough, which was called, I think it was a short little three-parter called Ninja Ryu Kenden. And it was based on the first Ninja Gaiden game, I think. I was really interested in it. And... I went looking for that and he had it and I got episode one and Bruno or his son, I forget who said to me, but he was like, dude, if you like ninjas, you have to see this movie. I had no idea what it was. And it was called Jubei Nimpocho, which is, was called, they called it the wind ninja chronicles, but I think the accurate translation turned out to be Jubei the wind ninja. And so I knew it as the Wind Ninja Chronicles. It was written there on the on the label with Sharpie, just like, you know, meticulously written like he did everything. And I was like, I, you know, just I think what appealed to me was that it was a feature film. And I was like, all right, you know, because I would go with 100 bucks. I'd walk away with three VHS tapes. That's it. And they were usually three episodes of something. So, you know, an hour and a half worth of content. The fact that so, I think, but, but I'm sorry, real yeah, quick, yeah. Dig, I just want to say that's so much money. Oh, it's so. It was ridiculous. And, I mean, that's a lot of money now, but that in a hundred dollars, I spent all my money on that, basically. That's it's what I keep saying about games too. Like we just have so much better access. Imagine spending. Oh my god, a hundred dollars on something. It's like so that. funny. Even like, today, that's absurd. It's absurd. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. No, I just, not I at all. Say that. Not at all. But you know, it's true. Like people my age, Gen X anime fans, think back fondly to that time, and it was cool because so much of the stuff was there was mystique back then, right? We talk about that Definitely. all the time. But the cost was not a fond remembrance, right? So I think what was particularly appealing to me was like, all right, I'm going to get this feature. These guys seem to have good taste. They never really made a bad take. And I think they might have said to me too, like, if you don't like it next month, just like exchange it for an episode of Angel Cop or something that you know you like, you know? But everything back then was an experiment because maybe you had a blurb in Animag or you saw something in New Type, which you could see the pictures, but you couldn't understand what was written there. Obviously, it was all in Japanese. So everything was sort of trial by fire back then. It was like, all right, maybe I'll spend 30 bucks on this. It might suck. But mostly it was just the allure of getting any kind of anime back then. It was magical, you know? So I got this thing home and of course, I fell in love with it. It was very, it reminded me very much of something like Akira and I think I might have saw Ghost in the Shell after this, but something that was a cut above in terms of quality. It was cinematic. You could tell it had a bigger budget than most OAVs or direct-to-TV episodic series that you would see. And, you know, it was all on a whim. It was all on a recommendation. Who knew how I would find out about it later on? Now, Manga Entertainment took it and put it on video and DVD later. That's what I watched here. I have the DVD here. I really wanted to show you guys the VHS because, but I can't find my box of bootleg VHS. They're somewhere, but I can't find them. But so that's how it started with me, Kyle. And then, you know, I remember getting to school. It was other art centric nerds, animation nerds, anime nerds. And they were, you know, so it was like, I was in good company. A lot of people were into this film, 
you know, so I was kind of thrust into this community of people coming from all over now in Philly of just, you know, would be, you know, future animators and anime fans and stuff like that. So we kind of bonded over this film. I had roommates that we would watch it, you know, every weekend, you know, they would get stoned or high or do tabs of ass or whatever and watch it. And, uh, you know, it does re it's nice too, because the other two movies that you think about in the same breath in ghost in the shell and Akira again, are cyberpunk futuristic urban settings. This is a feudal Japanese take on that same sort of level of almost similar level of quality, not quite as high, but you know, so, um, and I really wanted to see what you, what you thought of it and everything you said, your sentiments really ring true with me because I have to say in watching it the last couple of times over the last two weeks, I only, I understand so much more than I ever did. And that was because I really did a deep dive as far as like finding out exactly what this meant and how much of it was based on this novel, particular novel or feudal Japan, historical characters, how much of it was made up and how much of it was cut out of the film. Cause the running time's what just short of an hour and uh hour and a half. It's an hour and a half about, yeah, it's 93 minutes. So I'm, um, you know, so I really want to get into it with you and see what you thought. And, um, it's also kind of a departure for me because I'm not really like a big sex and violence type of guy, but that's not, I don't think that's what appealed to me about it. I think what appealed to me about it was the ninja, feudal Japan, samurai, wandering swordsman type of element that we are, you know, that was already on our radars from things like Storm Shadow and G.I. Joe and Ninja Turtles and growing up a Gen Xer in New York with WR TV channel nine sort of Shaw brothers, Kung Fu blocks every weekend. And then that playing into just Wu Tang clan and discovering martial arts films. And later on with Jet Li and the big budget things like hero and crouching tiger and house of flying daggers and all those things. So this was just like really in my wheelhouse, just as far as like Ninja samurai. I love that shit. I love that. It's like kind of a grounded film but deals a little bit with the mystical elements and ninja magic and all that kind of stuff. So let's break it down, my friend. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, let's do it. I I think what was interesting to me about this, and and it's always interesting to me about ninja fiction, let's say, and and kind of us coming up at a time when this was really entering its own in the West, is I've always been fascinated by how attractive they are and and of course, how I guess crestfallen I was when I learned that ninja are really not very cool in in history. They're they're considered like shitty, you know, maybe maybe talented, but kind of like shitty, cowardly samurai type people that do things in the dark. And sure, I, I'm I'm curious in Japanese culture when, and I don't know enough about it, but when that kind of more realistic image of the ninja as an assassination squad or people that would do traps and just things that were not honorable, honorable, but needed to be done. Like when they kind of seized control of that and made it into this other thing. And like the way we see it now sure. and how the word ninja when I was a kid was all I needed to see. I mean, ninja, anything ninja. And that's why it's so funny with that Fortnite player uh, ninja. It's like, how did you even get that name? Like, I, I feel like that name is just no one is ninja. That that's, that's just how did he do that? Yeah, it's like it's very strange, but I wonder what's attractive to you about that, about the whole iconography of the ninja. And, you know, we, we've talked about our love of ninja stars in the past and how we used to throw them and at the back fence in the backyard. And we used to run around with our fake swords. And there's just something that's always been very attractive about it. We loved Edge in Final Fantasy four, and we obviously loved Ninja Gaiden. And like you said, Storm Shadow. So. What is it about the ninja that is so attractive to you? Even and what is it that's so powerful to this day about it? We still are very attracted to the to the ninja clad in black with the katana and you know, walking mystically through the fog. We, I mean, yeah, those. our generations grew up just being so attracted to that—the coolness, the mystique. I think the first thing you have to start with is the aesthetic. I mean, it just looks cool—black robes, the mask, maybe you know, mysterious, not speaking having mm. wielding all these amazing weapons i think there's definitely a western fascination looking into the east you know that it seems so different than our culture you know there's definitely a fascination there with eastern culture from looking from a western perspective and shurikens and swords and then you know chain weapons and ninja magic summoning things disappearing smoke bombs like it's like a it's like a childhood dream come true all wrapped in one thing. Like there's different things when you're a kid, right? Robots are fascinating. I guess in the old days it was soldiers and cowboys and stuff. You have different right. things, dragons, right? Maybe fantasy type heroes, but for me, the ninja is just the coolest and the most fascinating and the most mysterious. And the fact that you even as a kid you know you don't know much yet, but you know that these things you know, these characters, these people were based in history. And before you realize what the difference is, you grow up and you kind of get educated and you realize the difference between the Shogun and Feudal Japan and what the difference between a samurai and a ninja is and all that kind of stuff. You're kind of just lumping it all together. It's like Usagi Yojimbo and Ninja Turtles and Storm Shadow and American Ninja movies and 
you know, looking at, you know, the whatever Hong Kong cinema was on your radar at that time and Shokosagi and all these guys, like everything was just wrapped up into one. It didn't matter if it was live action or a comic book or animated ninjas are just badass, you know, and ninjas sold, you know, I figured it was like, looking back, it was like sex sells, you know, violent sells ninjas just sold. You saw like a really badass thing like storm shadow or a dollar store shitty ninja. It didn't matter. It was a ninja, you know, a ninja play right. set with plastic swords and shurikens and then getting older totally, and getting man. stuff from Chinatown, like real weapons, like fascinating. I'll, I, well, I wouldn't trade it. It's funny too, because I always looked at, you know, samurai are cool, but I always looked at samurai when I was a kid being like, these guys suck. I don't, I don't want anything to do with you know, these. Who the hell are these guys? But as you get older and learn, you're like, no, those are like the knights of that society. They, they're the exact opposite of suck. Exactly. And they also, I think would destroy ninja, uh, on, in a, in a, like a one-on-one battle, historically speaking. Sure. But I, I only took a couple of Japanese history classes at Northeastern and I don't know much about it. I mean, even just reading a little bit about Ninja Scroll, because some of the stuff they were saying, I'm like, this takes place in like the 17th or 18th century in my mind. And then I went and looked and I was right. It, it's somewhere in there. I don't know exactly when, but it is. I, I do want to ask you about this because you were talking about as we get kind of deeper into the actual film itself, you were talking about the accessibility of this film and the importance of this film to finding new audiences and Brian Lau wrote into us and of course you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash media for early ad free access to the show yo Brian and submit your questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas etc he says hey Super Mario Moriarty bros this was a movie that got me into anime as a 13 year old chibi whippersnapper <laughs> the violence and art were completely different from anything I've seen on Saturday mornings in your opinion how influential do you think this movie was in bringing a new audience to anime so I'm curious do you think it's more important than something like Akira or Ghost in the Shell because when I look at that trifecta of movies you brought up, this seems to be the least important. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but from that perspective, I mean, how important was it in comparison to its, its contemporaries that I feel like you hear more about? I mean, at least I do ghost in the shell became huge. Sure, in the 90s. Of course. Um, and Akira obviously was, and is a seminal film. So I just, I wonder, was there something specific about this film that was either more or less influential than those? And do you do you agree that it's maybe the least of those three films as far as it's, it's influence or is that wrong? Yeah, no, I think I'm right there with you. I would order this, you know, if I had to order it, Akira was of obviously the utmost importance. And a lot of us saw that by the time the nineties rolled around, but 88, 89, we were already seeing that ghost in the shell. Interestingly enough of the trifecta came last because for a lot of us, because I think ghost in the shell got its brief theatrical release in the States in North America in 96, I want to say. So a lot of people were turned on to that film last, which is interesting. But I think hmm. it, it's it, there's a lot of interesting points to this conversation because each of those three things are widely regarded, again, as you know the gateway for Western audiences to discover anime. I think one part of that was people, just in terms of quality, like, you know, it has a more Disney-esque, if you will, level of quality than the typical OAV that you might have gotten, Ixer or Bubblegum Crisis or, you know, Gal Force or any Dominion, any of those things that you were watching back then. Obviously, it was a cut above in terms of quality. Even the best TV or OAV, OAV thing didn't have this kind of budget behind it. And it's important to say Ninja Scroll was sort of funded by... A, tri a triumvirate of three huge companies, JVC, 
Toho movie theater, you know, movie studio and Movic or Movic, which was like a big anime licensee company. So much like Akira, it had corporations backing it financially. It didn't do well mm. in Japan as its theatrical release. But the biggest thing to note is Akira was done by a visionary named Katsuhiro Otomo, right? Apple, uh, not Apple, so Ghost in the Shell, Masamune Shiro. And Ninja Scroll was directed and penned by another historical anime legend named Yoshiaki Kawajiri who a lot of people would know from other things that he did, Vampire D, Bloodlust, Wicked City. But Ninja Scroll was the thing that put Kawajira, Kawajiri on the map. He's still alive. I believe he's still working. He has an animation list as long as your arm dating back to like the late 60s as a lead animator before he started directing in the mid-80s, I think, with the Lensman movie. But he's one of those anime gods, basically. And so... Though, you know, having the backing of a famous animation director, also one of the one of the co-founders of Madhouse, I'm wearing my Madhouse shirt today, one of the four founding members of Madhouse who animated this movie, one of, you know, probably the film that put Madhouse on the map in terms of quality and in terms of like a force to be reckoned with in terms of creating very high quality anime. But yeah, I think there's sort of a conflagration of factors that make this the smallest one it didn't do well in japan they couldn't even get a a sequel off the ground because nobody would back it financially and two i think because it is the lowest budget of those three films i think if you look at something amazing you know absolutely timeless like akira and even the first ghost in the shell movie which is gorgeously done huge budgets ninja scroll doesn't have that level of craftsmanship not quite that level it has other things. It has beautiful scenery and pastoral forests and bamboo forests and fireflies and running water. It has things that the other films don't have in terms of scenery, in terms of graphical imagery. But I think it is the lowest in terms of overall quality. It's not quite a Studio Ghibli film. You could see there's some really showcased, highly gorgeously rendered anime, you know, uh, action scenes, but so you could see where the B team came in and did some of the slower scenes, some of the dialogue scenes, cutaways and stuff like that. So I just think in terms of quality, it doesn't quite reach the benchmark of the other two. But I think it was formative for a lot of the same reasons as those other two, two just the graphic imagery, sex, violence. Again, like I think it started, these are the things, these three films in particular were the things that sort of brought in a new way of thinking, a new Eastern way of thinking with animation, where animation was largely considered, into the early to mid-90s, kids' fair and children's fair, where in Japan it hadn't been like that for many years. This started to usher in a whole new way of thinking, where it was like people started to realize that animation could be, there were other genres, and it didn't just have to be for kids, and started to you know usher in a sea change with that way of thinking. But Ninja Scroll was definitely one of those things where it was, and, you know, people just wanted to watch it. It was like it had the same allure as a horror movie, you know, where there was going to be a body count and there was going to be blood and gore on screen and sex and boobs and all that kind of stuff. Things that a lot of people in the West hadn't seen in animation, you know, maybe for years since maybe heavy metal or something like that, or maybe missed that whole thing completely and didn't really realize 
or think of animation in that way where this was kind of a thing where it was like, all right, this is animation could be for adults too. Animation could be for teenagers. Animation could deal with these sort of topics. It could be just, you know, it could be treated the same as live action. And that's what Ninja Scroll, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, a few other things that were heavies in the, uh, in the marketplace or in, you know, that came from the East into the West and made people see, kind of opened people's eyes a little bit. What was it? Do you, well, I don't know if you have any in, insight into this. You probably do, but why didn't it do well in Japan? What was it about this film that didn't resonate with audiences there? Because that, this seems, and I was remarking that as we were watching it, I'm like, this seems so profoundly Japanese that I would imagine that this is a movie that maybe they took a second look at later and realized, like, I guess how important and how, high quality it is but it fe- it felt so uniquely japanese to me and um, do you know anything about why it wasn't no received? i mean it's it's interesting if you think about like i would just find this you know this subject matter this specific historical era in japan these characters sort of mystifying the whole you know basically eastern sword and sorcery right that's basically what ninjutsu is, right? You, you got ninja magic and mystical elements paired with a grounded sort of martial arts, fighting with weapons, fighting with your hands, things that went on with that certain period, historical period in Japan. So I would find that endlessly fascinating no matter where you're from. It's almost like, think about it akin to like the Civil War or the Revolutionary War if you're an American, right? Those mm. Or World War II. As mm. Americans... Those were stories set, you know, with Americans, by Americans. It was a period in our history, but we find it endlessly fascinating where I would think the same thing if I was Japanese. I would assume that that stuff would be equally as fascinating, but maybe that's what it was. Maybe it just didn't have that sort of fascination or allure behind it or didn't seem, you know, it it felt too familiar, where it's like, if you think of something like Akira, Ghost in the Shell, it's you're dealing with cyberpunk, you're dealing with fantasy, futuristic elements. It's more of a fairy tale. Where right. this maybe it just hits a little too close to home, where it's like, all right, we've heard about samurai. You know, we see that architecture when we go out to the countryside. We see what a pagoda looks like. We see, you know, we know the history of swords, mm. you know, what, yeah. what, what the inside of these houses look like, all that kind of stuff, even if it was hundreds of years ago. You know, so maybe it was just that where it was like, and anime was in a real, if you do think about the mid to late 80s, I would say dating all the way back to the 70s, I would argue, but mid to late 80s into the early 90s, anime was in a real sci-fi mode where that was what was popular. Giant robots, bat, you know, spaceships, battleships, things set in space, good versus evil set amongst the stars, very Star Wars-esque female protagonist which this film does have a female protagonist but you could argue that the main protagonist is is the male is kibagame jubei so you know maybe it had all that working against it it could be my own i don't even know what the sales figure figures were or how long it lasted in the theaters in japan i couldn't even find that information but apparently mm. I, I looked i looked briefly too i couldn't find the box office the, the biggest thing or the biggest uh factor that came out of all this was they couldn't fund a sequel for many years, they couldn't get a sequel film off the ground, even someone as powerful or sought after as Kawajiri. And I think the 13 part TV series came 
10, even 10 years later, which, I, which I've never seen. I think it debuted in 2003. It sort of continues the adventure, adventures of Jubei, from what I understand, but I haven't seen it. Obviously, a lot lower budget. And then, you know, apparently there's other factors like Leo DiCaprio's production company was trying to get a live action adaptation off the ground for many years and it kind of got caught in in uh you know in movie hell and all that kind of stuff and could you know could have got hung, hung up with the script and financial backing and all that kind of stuff but it's weird because i guess that initial lack of financial revenue or you know making back money was sort of the the bugaboo that sort of cursed this film and just or cursed this entity as a franchise and said you know kind of stopped it in its tracks which maybe is a good thing maybe that's why we're still talking about it because it was never really you know they never beat it into the ground well said oh, oh. Well, well said all right so let's get into some of the the movie itself here i wanted to start with die win who wrote in and said hey gentlemen yo i think that it's interesting that a femme fatale like kagero dispatches her enemies indirectly via sexual touch what do you think this movie was trying to explore by having kagero kill any man good or bad, that has sexual contact with her. And, of course, this is going to come up, so I'll just read Dan Patterson as well. He says, Hey, Brothers Moriarty, I know that Ninja Scroll is held in high regard by many, but I have to say the impression it left on me was disturbing. I believe I saw this movie for the first and only time when I was around 11 or 12. One of my friends had rented it from Blockbuster, and I sat down excitedly to watch an anime I believe to be an action movie about ninjas. I remember nothing about this movie except one scene, the rape scene. I believe this was the first time I had seen something like this graphic in anime, and it turned me off to the whole movie. I'm curious if for how this scene impacted you when you first saw it. Also curious how old you were when you first saw it. So we talked a little bit about that. We're going to get into that scene and the sexuality that pervades this movie generally. But what do you make about the sexuality specifically with uh, what uh, Dai was saying about the femme fatale? And is there something about that the movie's trying to tell you about? Is there some, is there some message, a uh, deeper message with the woman that kills with sex and all of that? Or is it just uh, the employment of uh, cool... Uh, of of just a cool way to interact with uh, fiction. Yeah, it's a yeah, good it's a good a, question. Yeah. I don't know if I ever thought of Kagero that way. A device, let's call it. Yeah, <laughs> I I will say, you know, I was nineteen, obviously, when I saw this film the first time. But if I was your age, Kyle, or maybe a little older, like some of our listeners so far, around the thirteen year old, I definitely would have been fascinated. I probably would have tried to see it if I had a big brother type in my life. But I think it would have definitely disturbed me at that age, particularly the violence. I mean mm. the the fight the the fight with Tessai in the beginning where he's just massacring the entire ninja clan with his weapon and they're just getting split in half and shit like that. It's pretty visceral. It's pretty it's pretty hardcore stuff. I know anime has come a long way and there's been much worse since then. But for an earlier anime and of course we had things like Fist of the North Star and excessive violence, almost cartoonish levels of violence, but this really for a for a film was Akira did the same thing. Maybe to a slightly lesser degree. But the Kagero character is interesting because I love the fact, the irony behind this character and the tragedy behind this character that she's a, not only is she a female ninja, so she's pretty fascinating because you don't see that a lot. I think in anime, before Ninja Scroll, we had a few things like Dagger of Kamui, right? Which was, which centered largely on a female ninja per- protagonist and then later on we got big ninja franchises like naruto and stuff like that but this was pretty fascinating to see a female ninja and not only that but the fact that one of her powers or one of her uses basically her her function 
in this clan was as a poison taster to make sure a food wasn't poisoned and then to identify poisons and the fact that she's immune to poison, but she's also poisonous. Like you basically can't touch her and she certainly can't have physical relations with a man, you know, with people. She can't have physical relationships. So already you feel, and she's, her attitude reflects that of somebody who you could see never knows that she'll never feel what love is, you know, which is pretty, pretty insane thing. You know, mm. it definitely elicits our sympathy for the character, the fact that she's such a hard ass, but you understand why her attitude is that way. You know, she's de- basically robbed of like a basic life function. And the fact that she's so instrumental to the, I guess, the longevity of this clan and her function as a poison, the, you know, the, her rare power to be able to identify and taste poisons without dying. But the fact that she's toxic, she's literally toxic. You can't touch her. So I love that. I mean, it's such a simple idea, but it's such a grounding idea for a film. It makes her a really fascinating character. And you really want to see how things are going to end up with this character. You know, the fact that the rape scene is so graphic is it borders on mean spirited because this girl is already like, you know, this, this woman has already endured so much, but also I love the fact that she's basically murdering you when you're trying to take advantage of her, you know, and of course factors into Jubei's survival because he might've never beat Tessai if, if, if Tessai didn't rape Kagero, right? So that's interesting. Good storytelling. It is. It is good storytelling. It's um, what I was, I was, because I think that was the first time I had seen that scene that certainly didn't even really know that it happened. And I was like, wow, this is really graphic. And it's, you're not going to see a real person in real life that's built like Juggernaut or something. So you're not going to be able to see that. But I was like, wow, you would never see this sort of representation of rape in a real movie, I don't think, or a real TV show quite, quite this viscerally. And so I, I think it, I think it's designed to elicit horror and shock. I, I think that's the entire idea. And in fact, a lot of the sexuality that runs through the film is, is quite interesting because there's like a lot of things where like they, they, they imply that like they're, sh- you know, they're fingering this girl at one time and yeah. like they're, they're doing, it's like not to be perverse, but that, that, that it's like, wow, like what the fuck is going on here? It's, <laughs> it's not- pretty sick. It is. It's very and like even just a little off comments that they have constantly about like, isn't she, you know, whatever. They're always like saying some something about her. It's uh, I think in my from my perspective, it, it I feel like it's designed to elicit that level of discomfort. And why would it be comfortable to watch a woman be raped? I mean, so, of course, if you're going to if you're going to have that portrayed in in animation, then it's going to be a little startling and a little stunning. And I, I, I so and I love that character. It's Tessai, right? Yeah, this yeah, is this is the, guy. Yeah, yeah, this is the guy uh, that I and I really wanted to ask you about that. Well, you know, I'll let I'll let the late Nate bring it up here because just the enemies generally in this in this movie. I, I want to get into this chicken or the egg fiasco that I have in my own mind. OK, he said he says, hey, my fair pair of brothers whose last name starts with an M Ninja Scroll is considered yeah. one of the most influential pieces of anime from the 90s. But I wanted to ask about the series, uh, what series you believe to take direct influence from it. For myself, I most identify its influence in an anime from my childhood, Inuyasha. However, I'm willing to admit it may be because I saw it at a young age. Apparently, the composer for Ninja Scroll, Kaoru Wada, mm. was also the composer for Inuyasha. So maybe that's why I find them similar. I always love to hear 
uh, Dagan, you and Dagan discuss anima- animation. He actually says just Dagan, so that's fine. Uh, I'm curious. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about, uh, I guess, some of the design influence and the chicken and the egg situation I've been having here is just that this feel, this movie, I, I said it constantly. I think I was annoying everyone. I'm like, this is a video game. This is a video game. Oh, this is a video absolutely. game. Absolutely. This is a video game. It's a video game. It's a video game. It's a video game. And, I, and then Micah brought up a really good point where she's like, well, is it or are video games influenced by stuff like this? Mm, mm-hmm. And I was like, that's an interesting point, especially because I'm, I'm fascinated by that. The fact that you brought up Ninja Gaiden specifically because the weird mystical bad guy that you see in the purple, he reminds me of Jockeyo from Ninja Gaiden, the bad guy in the first Ninja Gaiden. Oh, game the guy how, with the claw. Yeah. yeah and yeah, how yeah. terrifying I, I, how terrified I was of that. Like, they show him like there's like these weird scenes where they splice it in almost exorcist like he was scary you know, where you Shakio. see and, and it's scary. So but it brought up this quandary in me about the things that this movie influenced or what influenced this movie and this chicken and egg situation about, well, which came first? Because we identify this as video gaming. You have eight enemies yes. and eight enemy lieutenants with their special skills and you have to travel all around and fight them in any perceived order and. It's a video. It's a fucking video game, but I just don't know if that's a if that's a fair assessment. So, what do you think about what this what influenced this movie? What this movie influenced, and what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because there's just no denying to me that this is an archetype type movie for a video game. And I mean, shit, Deathloop when we're recording this just came to PS5, and it's about running around an island killing eight people before time runs out. Oh I mean, wow, it, really? Yeah. So. To say that this is video gaming is is to say, you know to put it the very least touch on oh, it. Absolutely. What do you think about what do you think about that and that the chicken and the egg kind of situation I find myself in as I try to identify the influences? Yeah, I think it does. I think it feels very video game like. I have that written in my notes too. I mean, in fact, the eight devils of Kimon, who you know we you know are employed by this shogun of the dark, this mystical shogun of the dark. I think they're more interesting than the main protagonist and even maybe the main three pro- protagonists outside of Kagero maybe where, you know, you have Jubei, you have your main protagonist. And for me, he's, you know, you got this former ninja now turned solitary wandering swordsman for hire, you know, apparently, you know, essentially a Ronin undertakes mission for, for pay and no one Lord or master not beholden to anybody and we know he was once a ninja, and we know he's courageous and skillful and virtuous. It turns out he's a pretty selfless dude. Clever, you know, we find out very early on in the opening minutes that he's a man of modest means. He doesn't ask for much. He only asks for enough from whoever's hiring him to survive, to get food, to get rice balls or whatever. He's not, you know, the other mercenaries were like, we're going to do this job for 300 gold. What the fuck are you doing? He's like, I do, I'm doing it for 20 gold. Like, I just need to eat type of thing, you know? He doesn't really, he's interesting because Jubei is not a protagonist with any tangible flaws that really that we could see. He's just a fun surrogate for the audience to go along. We're rooting for him because he's a good guy. He's just a good guy. You know, not only is he a a badass that channels wind through his sword, but he's just a good, he's just a good guy. You know, he's like an Indiana Jones type, really. And that makes him fun but I'm not sure how interesting he is. You're rooting for him. You like him. But 
I think the eight devils of Kimono where it gets interesting because now you have these bad guys and it does, Kyle, you're absolutely right. It plays like a video game. You have these seven unique mini boss, mini bosses, really mini boss fights, each with a very dis- different and distinct enemy, each, each enemy with a very distinct, distinctive power. And that's leading to a final big boss fight and very video game like in that, you know, that confrontation Everything's leading to this final, it ends here kind of scenario, this once and for all settling of some long-standing bad blood between the protagonist, the main protagonist, and the main antagonist, who you only meet really in action at least much later on. So, and I think it's built really on, now this story has, we talked about it earlier, we opened up with this in the conversation where there's... there's a historical feudal Japanese setting. There's political intrigue. There's political infighting. There's a backstory of clans fighting each other. Uh, This clan who's essentially this evil clan trying to procure gold so they could buy weapons from Spain so they could essentially take over the country is really what's going on. And then there's a shogun spy who's trying to stop them behind the scenes. And there's a wandering swordsman and a poisonous ninja chick and there's it's it's pretty multifaceted but essentially it really is just a video game the good guy has to get through these seven bad guys so he can get to the main bad guy and kill him and i think if you're looking at this movie produced you know came out in 93 maybe they were working on it for three years that means they started in 1990 that already 8-bit into 16-bit typical video game action franchise built in do a level get to the level beat a boss get to level two beat that boss. you know that was already instilled in video game culture right. we already knew right. knew that going into 1990 so this film seems to be taking a page out of the way video games were traditionally built if that makes sense to you sure it absolutely does and Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Orochi News Team wrote in a little bit about the villains, too. He said, Konichiwa Brothers Moriarty, Konnichiwa. Ninja Scroll. What a masterclass showcase of 90s anime features. Kawajira Yoshiaki, Yoshiaki is a treasure of storytelling and has his hand in many of the genre's most beloved projects. Oh, yes. In Ninja Scroll, I adored all unique characters. Both the protagonists and villains had me on the edge of my seat. The Eight Devils of Kamon might be the ensemble of some of the greatest and da- most dangerous villains. As a teen... I got my hands on the VHS in 95. Me and a friend watched it several times in awe of the animations, the action sequences, sounds, art style, sex, and gore. I was no stranger to any of it, but Ninja Scroll in its day definitely pushed the limits. Which villain did you guys like the most? Mm. So I'm curious which of these eight 
We have Genma Hamoro, the leader. Got his Jay Leno chin. We have Tasai, who <laughs> we really see does. early on. Uh, then we have Benisato, who is the snake lady. We have Mushizo, who's the awkward looking uh, hornet person. We have Mujuro, who's the blind sword fighter. We have Shijima, who's kind of like the shadowy creature. Yurimaru, who has that cool string that he uses. And then uh, Zakoro, who's the chick that revives the deceased. So I, I have a lot of love for all these characters. And I must say that the two characters to me dig that stood out the most is I, I love Yurimaru, simply just the string, how they're like coming out of his. It, there's like some weird mystical thing about it. And then he like cast the lightning spell or whatever oh, so and, cool. and electrifies them. But my favorite is definitely Shijima. I just love the way they represent him. That seemed to be the most video gamey, like when he creates like all of the copies of himself or whatever. It was super cool. Felt like Gemini Man or something like that in Mega Man. And I liked that. I liked that interstitial splice in the beginning with his face. It, was, it felt very dark, very exorcist horror movie. Like, yes, he brought an interesting level to that. So out of the out of these villains, um, which are the ones that stand out to you most? I like as a group how dynamically different they are. It's proper writing, proper character design, grouping of a group of enemies that are really different. You know, they each wield a different power. And there's a lot of mysticism behind what they could do paired with the traditional ninjutsu. I love the fact that they're ninja. Like, that's a ninja clan. Like, that that's what a ninja is. That's crazy. I like how this film tells us, like, a ninja could be a lot of different things. You know, it could be Jubei. It could be Genma. It could be those that army of ninjas that Jubei's running through at the end. Traditional brown-clad ninjas jumping from rooftop to rooftop. And, or they could be these demons. And they could all have these very diverse set of skills. I like Shijima, the purple guy, who I think is killed fifth out of the eight of them. Because yes. he's an interesting character because not only does he last a while, he, he lives through a couple of different confrontations with Jubei, but he's also maybe the most OP of the entire team. He has a lot of powers, if you think about it, right? He could do a lot. He has... He wields that huge multi-bladed metallic claw that he get multi-bladed claw that he could fire off chains. So he has that really formidable physical weapon. And then he could create copies of himself. He sort of manipulates shadow and seems to be able to kind of traverse matter. Like he could he could blend into shadow. He could sink into the ground. He could uh, blend into stone, all that kind of stuff. And that power that you discussed where he could kind of possess and manipulate the dead to his ends like control them like zombies somehow super cool but this character does a lot i you know and i love i love the physical look of this character too the tesse character the guy who we meet for who we see jubei take on first the stone skinned guy is interesting because he's one of the physical one of, you know physically one of the coolest characters so it's interesting that jubei takes care of him first because i would have liked to seen tessai last a little longer and i love that whole confrontation it's one of my favorite scenes in the film where you know he's in that hut and he's taking advantage of kagero and jubei's just sitting there in the shadows <laughs> until he know he's just sitting there with his sword on his shoulder and you know tessai knows him he's like get the fuck out of here and, and jubei's like basically confronting him we see how fearless this guy is you know and the fact that he didn't need to get jubei did not need to get involved in this you know, he was basically, again, that selfless from when you meet Jubei very early on, you already like him. 
because there's no reason he had to become embroiled with these monsters, and he does. Right, and he also embarrasses that one guy saying, you know, I don't need to charge more than what these people have. I can't charge 300 Rio or whatever for. Exactly. You know, so yeah. he's you already kind of get that that vibe from him. And that, like you said, he's just trying to get by. Yeah. In some way. He's just or a consummate right good guy. You don't even really right. see anything. There's not really any even tragic flaws with him or characters. I mean, he even, flaws. I mean, he, before he even knows the thing with Kagura too, like he, he, she throws him herself at him and, and yes he ref, you know and he refuses to as a know. cure and i think right exactly which yeah. is yeah which is you know which is so which is so cool i like it's interesting to have a character like that because i feel like nowadays even 20 years later you would probably try to impart some sort of humanizing character trait into jubei to make him you know, that seems to be the trend in storytelling where it's like you can't have the perfect character. There's a little bit of gray in everybody, but not in Jubei. And that, again, that harkens back to some of our heroes, right? Luke Skywalker, I think of Indiana Jones, like people that you just want to root for in a popcorn movie type of way. That's what I love about Jubei. And the fact that he's paired against these fucking monsters. I mean, I think that's one of like the rape scene as graphic and as seemingly mean spirited as it is, which you see a lot. In, in entertainment, specifically in anime, I would say especially over the last decade. But I think a function of that is to show, like, he's up against some fucking bad dudes. Like, these are not, these are, these are devils, you know, on earth, basically. Like, these are demons. And, you know, so it's, it's this good guy up against these irredeemably bad guys. So when Jubei's wrecking shop, you know what I mean? You you could really get behind him. You know, it's an unapologetic. You don't have to feel bad for when he slays these guys one by one, which is which is really right. interesting. But I, you know, I love them all for different reasons. I don't know what know if you want to go through each one, but sure, we, let's let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we um yeah. So we talked about Tessai a little bit. Let's uh let's go to Benisato, who's the second one mm. that dies. Snake Lady. What do you think of her? It's an interesting fight because. We don't get, even though Benisato comes back for two fights, we don't get a lot of her. We know that this character has an army of snakes at her command, right? She commands an army of snakes. She also has some mystical powers to cast spells or, or, or send her opponent into a trance. Something with, by manipulating the snake tattoos on her body. And she basically gets the better of Jubei. You know, he's bathing in the hot spring. He's she's in the mist. I love the scene where he's talking to her, but he's moving his sword. So he's picking his sword up slowly as he's talking with her. It's so mm. cool. Like he, you can see yeah, his sword is. moving in the foreground. Like, oh, what the fuck is yeah, this person? There's doing a that? lot of there's a lot of, by the way, just in that regard, there's a lot of what you wouldn't necessarily call it humor. But kind of, there's a lot of that in this film. Yes, where there's a lot of just sneaky, funny. I don't know what it is. You know, like like little nods. You constantly are getting nodded at. Like little things it's a that good are point. In the foreground or whatever. It's yeah. kind of his personality. Like he's kind of oddly lighthearted about stuff. I don't know Definitely. if it's because he's confident in his abilities. Like when Jubei's facing those mercenaries, those guns for hire on the bridge in the beginning of the movie, he seems to be acting like he knows that they're outmatched. Like the average bear is not going to be enough to bring it, even if there's even if Jubei's outnumbered. He knows that. You know, because of the power that he wields and his skill, that these guys can't really get the better of them, better of him. In fact, he he vanquishes them without being overly violent. He doesn't go out of his way to murder that last dude. You know what I mean? He's just defending himself. And when he's pit, it's interesting when he's pit against. He seems to bring that 
that same personality into facing these devils because I think partially because he doesn't know what he's up against. It's a little more than what he's used to. But also because he just has that sort of personality of maybe, you know, he brings that confidence in. Like maybe he hasn't really, maybe he hasn't really faced anyone that's his match. You know, maybe he's bringing, maybe this is a whole learning thing for him where it's like now he's kind of facing, you know, he's facing people that are a formidable opponent that make a formidable opponent for him. But, you know, I love the fact of the the Benny Sato fight because she really does get the better of him. He's falling into her trance. And Daquan comes with the poison shuriken and sort of snap, not only to poison Jubei, but also having a second function to snap him out of it. So he could, you know, so Jubei could essentially fight back. And then we see Benny Sato could flee a fight via shedding her skin like a snake, which was interesting. And then later on, he does, you know, it's the same thing where she forms that giant monster out of her snakes. But again, showing how powerful these characters are. The same thing with the Tessai fight, where if Tessai wasn't poisoned by Kagaro, would Jubei be able to beat Tessai? I don't know. Mm. I really don't know. It seemed like it was going to be a proper showdown until, of course, Tessai started shedding his stone skin. He was poisoned, essentially, by the toxic female ninja so and almost every fight there's something that allows jubei to gain the upper hand besides just his skill like he he seems like he's he's extremely lucky in combat like something happens to assist him which we'll talk about with every with almost every enemy i think well i with this next one i wanted to bring up which is and we brought him up earlier obviously mushizo i wanted to work in this comment we have from worst fanboy ever on patreon he says yeah Greetings, Moriarty brothers. I am very excited to see that you are looking back at one of the all-time great Japanese anime movies, Ninja Scroll. For me, it is right up there with the likes of Akira, Vampire Hunter D, and Ghost in the Shell. I am really looking forward to hearing what Dagan has to say about the art and animation from his perspective as a professional animator, as well as the story behind how you first discovered the movie. Growing up in South Dakota, I unfortunately did not have access to a lot of anime until I was building my DVD collection for my newly acquired PS2 in 2001. My question for both of you, taking into consideration that you recently played Metal Gear Solid 2... What kind of influence do you think Ninja Scroll and especially the Eight Devils of Kamon may have had on the likes of Hideo Kojima and other Japanese video game developers in creating their own unique cast of characters uh, and villains? I can't help but draw a direct correlation to Kojima characters like Vulcan Raven, Vamp, and the Pain. Thank you for all of the amazing last stand content. So well said. I was bringing I was bringing this up specifically because I agree, and we we had gone into this. But when I saw Mushizo, I was like, that reminds me of the Hornet character from Metal Gear Solid Three. I mean, that's it, it. Forgot about and, that, and I. And you had just brought up like how he's how he's always seems to be fighting with like a level of luck and getting a little bit of help in in um, Jubei. And I was uh, I was thinking like that's kind of like fortune in, in Metal Gear. Yes. So do, do you see that connection? And do you think that this had some sort of influence on Kojima? You almost you can almost uh, I, I would imagine that it had to have they, they in the light of Ninja Scroll Metal Gear Solid villains seem like the same Kimon devil type groups. sure so do you think that there's some sort of connection there and do you see the connection specifically with uh mushizo and is it the pain is that the that is the guy with the hornets right yeah um, i think that's right i forgot Hornet all about villain. that connection now i'm now i'm excited to get there because i just started the game last night so i'm very excited yeah the pain that's right so yeah yeah so yeah yeah it's interesting i love yeah i love the fact the mushizo fight might be the only one where jubei is not afforded some outside help or luck. I think he might straight up beat Muchizo. But I love the point of 
this cast of villains seeming like a very Kojima-esque band like of Cobra baddies, unit. right? Because yeah. it feels like Kojima because they're sort of mystical in nature, but also there's a grounding, right? They're not too crazy. It's like, okay, a character that controls an army of snakes, a character that, can, character that controls a contingent of insects to do his bidding. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's believable. It's still believable in this feudal Japanese setting, you know, years ago in the past. It's not futuristic in any way. And Muchizo is interesting because he, you know, he looks like these, this hunched old dude, but it turns out that it's a giant wasp nest in his back. And of course he possesses the ability, ability to control the army of wasps, but he also fights with that really cool weapon, sort of that barbed pitchfork. It's not really a trident because it doesn't have the middle piece. And then, of course, he has that hidden throat dagger where he seems a little bit, Muchizo seems a little bit under, sort of under, um, underwhelming compared to the rest of the devils. Mm-hmm. It seems like he would be the one where Jubei could just take care of him on his own type of thing. But Jubei also gets lucky because he just he's trying to flee the wasps and he jumps into the water and then maybe not realizing that, you know, that that was actually a good move. Again, maybe luck played a part. And then Kagero, of course, we see some of her ninja magic where she fires the poppy leaves and the pollen out of her sleeve in order to subdue the insects until Jubei could figure out how to beat this dude or whatever. So it's re- and I love the fact that like again like you see this in the Tessai fight but you see Jubei wielding sort of harnessing the wind power in his sword which basically extends his sword slash again very video game esque where he basically fires a blast from his sword right think of Link from right, uh, right. Adventures of uh, Link to uh, Adventures of Link Zelda yeah, two Zelda two yep so it's like a thing where he could fire his blade up and basically cuts his leg off he does the same thing to Sh- uh, Shijima later on. But that, you know, it's a, it's a cool fight. And then he falls in the water and they have their little duel. And of course, Muchizo is done in by the wasp sort of coming out of his body, trying to escape the water and just being kind of run through by his own, his own little minions, which is ironic, but it's fun. It's fun. It's, it's super fun. I love it. Let's see here about Majora. Let's go to him next. Blind swordsman. I love this scene when they're in the bamboo forest and they're oh, running so cool. next, like parallel to each other. It's really, really neat. And reminds me a little bit of the character, the Asian character in Rogue One that uses the force and he's blind or whatever. A little bit of uh, maybe an echo there. Sure, but yeah. What did you think of that particular fight, that, that particular character? I love, you know, I mean, the blind swordsman. It's one of my favorite subgenres characters that you'll see, like not only the blind swordsman, but the elegant swordsman. You know, the one actually it's interesting because the Yuri Moro character sort of has that trait of like, that's what I thought, where I thought they were going with that character where he's kind of calm and he's smelling the flowers. He's sort of like that elegant, very grounded, very, you know, maybe like slightly feminine type warrior. But Mm -hmm. I love the blind swordsman specifically because, you know, being able to do that thing that's almost impossible to do when you have the gift of sight, you know, it takes a page out of like the famous blind swordsman fiction things like zatoichi the blind samurai and all that kind of stuff and it's a cool thing because the whole fight is set up because mojuru first of all saves jubei and kagaro from dying from falling off the cliff it just in order to have the duel and unlike the eight other eight devils seems to be challenging jubei on equal footing like 
you know, you're a, you're a legendary swordsman. I'm a legendary swordsman. Let's do this type of thing. Pretty neat. And you, like you said, the sa- the typical samurai duel where you're running in the bamboo forest, and Jubei knows like this guy's a formidable dude. Like you could say see from the beginning of the fight, and again how luck plays into it, where Kagero tries to intervene briefly and gets her Dai Katana stuck in the reed in the bamboo. The only that's the only thing that saves Jubei from being killed. Because when Mojiro swings down, he hits that, not knowing that that Daikatana is stuck across, blocks the blow so Jubi could stab him in the in the belly and, and defeat him. Super ironic. And I love the fact of like somebody who's going to be impossible to defeat because the only way to defeat this guy is, seemingly is to not make any noise. And that's impossible. Even while Jubei cutting down the bamboo and trying to you know, kind of cover himself with the noise of the falling leaves and everything and wasn't enough, you know? So he would have never been able to defeat this guy hadn't that, you know, again, that little element of luck played into it, which is interesting, again, because it's saying, like, not only is Jubei this, you know, this consummate hero, but he also needs luck in order to win. It makes him kind of yeah. lovable in a way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He He gets the help he needs to survive. I agree with you there. All right, uh, let's see here. We already talked about that. So, yeah, let's go to Yuri Maru, the string user, electric user. Interesting kind of lieutenant character. Quite attracted to this character. I just think it's, again, very video gamey. I love the creepiness, the constant. They, they're really tight on his face a lot, yeah. which is kind of cool. And you see the strings like on his almost marionette-like. Um, and so I, I really dig the design of this character. What did you think of him? He's super cool because... We get from pretty early on, you know, it's like, why is this giant stone monster listening to this dude type of thing? So we know early on that he's like, he's in charge or he's a force to be reckoned with. Because even this giant stone monster and Tessai is listening to, you know, he's like, stop going after him right now. Like Tessai's enraged. Like Jubei just poked his fucking eye out with a dagger. You know what I mean? He wants, he's out for blood and Yorimaru is like, dude, stop. Like, you're not going after him right now, you know? And, and Tessai listens. So right from the beginning, you're like, who the hell is this dude? You know, he's smelling a flower, standing there in the orchard, smelling a flower. Like, who is this guy? And you find out he's sort of Genma's chief lieutenant. And any character with that mystical ability to generate electricity is really interesting. You see that a lot in fiction. You see that a lot in fighting games. Obviously, we think of Blanca right? Street Fighter. Sure. The fact that you could internally generate this electricity and use it for attack. And then Yuri Morrow does it via this thin metal cord that he uses, as Kyle mentioned, and also is able to use that as like a, a string in a can, like little kids do to talk to Genma. You see the string. It's a little goofy, but it's kind of cool. Like they're using those electrical impulses to talk to each other like a phone, like a like a feudal Japanese cell phone service. Right, right. <laughs> kind of interesting. Full landline. And yeah, I wonder I if there's any historical, like, there's always a smattering of historical things. Like this story was based on the, the famous ninja slash samurai, Yagyu Jubei, right? Like, and based on a novel about that character, sort of. A cross between nursery rhyme and pop culture and fairy tale and truth, you know, actual legend and actual history. You wonder, like, with these weapons, with these with these various mystical abilities, like, how much of this is steeped in actual lore? Like, even if it's just some kind of myth, 
that's what really fascinates me about this type of stuff. It makes me want to kind of hanker down and find out more about feudal Japan. It was just fucking fascinating. You know what I mean? Definitely. Like Certainly. such a fascinating period, not just the weaponry, not just the political infighting and all that kind of stuff, but just the people, the way they lived, like how they got their food, like when they started trading with other countries, like just the el- the very briefly touched upon element of trading with countries like Spain, who were very wealthy countries or had already industry in some regard and were creating weapons and, and sort of projectile-based gunpowder weapons, then it was society or the world was kind of coming out of fighting with melee weapons and actual, you know, it was coming into the gun age with rifles and gunpowder and all that kind of stuff. Super fascinating stuff to me. Like really wants me to get, you know, get into the library, get in, get in some books and just find out how much of this stuff is like based on actual real life. It's super, super enticing to me. Yeah, it it is to me too. I want to talk about that in a little while when we begin to wrap up because there is something about the, the historical basis for things and kind of the subtle, the subtleties of supernatural stuff. We talk about that a lot with uh, our love of game of Thrones. Sure. That's another example. Sure. We haven't talked about Zakoro, uh, Zakoro and, uh, another interesting character. I'm looking at some of this. So ninja scroll.fandom.com has a lot of cool, like just stills. And there's just so many beautiful scenes with her in it, especially what do you think about this particular character? Yeah, she's a little, she's a little crazy demon chick, right? She has the power to manipulate and ignite gunpowder, which I love the character because you get this with the enemy characters. You get that there's sort of like this homosexual relationship between Genma and Yurimaru and that we know that Zakuro has this unrequited love with Yurimaru, which we find out Yurimaru is homosexual because she's trying to throw himself at, you know, trying to throw herself at him and he's kind of rejecting her advances. And because she's this jilted lover, she's sort of, we know early on that she's out to get Yurimaru and Yurimaru is powerful. He serves at the right hand of Genma. So you have this whole little side story going on with these two characters. Her power was very difficult for me to understand. We know how she's done in eventually on the ship by Jubei and Dakawan later, but she seems to be able, she has this cool power of harnessing gunpowder. I like, Mm. it reminds me of almost like Mulan, Disney's Mulan, where you have this ancient civilization is still a hundred years ago, but again, like the era is changing gunpowder and rifles and that sort of weaponry is coming into, is coming into the mainstream now. And it's replacing, it's slowly replacing bladed weapons and spears and swords and all that kind of thing. And I, so I like anytime there's a feudal Japanese thing dealing with early projectile weapons or maybe cannons or maybe things that are a bridge too far for actually the way it would have been in real life, but actually playing into like more modern weapons, but set mm-hmm. in this very ancient historical time, right? I like the fact that she could sort of harness gunpowder and the fact of she is able to detonate it, but I'm assuming that she sort of is able to ignite the gunpowder probably telepathically in some way. Yeah, presumably. Yeah, it's cool. She like makes little bombs. She makes little bombs. Um, which, right, right. And yeah, it seems like it's some sort of telepathic thing. Again, I think that it's very astute to for the 
audience member earlier to just pointed to Metal Gear because it just feels like that. Like everything, it just feels like a, a feudal Japanese Metal Gear. Yes, I, I gotta I gotta read more about that. I wonder if he's he's pretty open about his influences. I don't know if Kojima had talked about Ninja Scroll at all, but the final guy we need to talk about here, of course, is the big man, Genma J Leno Hamura. <laughs> What do you think of this? What do you think of this uh, seemingly immortal character? I love the character design. It's very, if you look at Kawajiri's work, it really, the whole movie really speaks to his style. But one of the first things that turned me on to Kawajiri, because I wasn't really familiar with Lensman at the time. And of course, his resume as an animator, he had to be a little bit of a chameleon. It wasn't his directorial sort of house style that he would later establish with Madhouse and just having his own signature. But there was a short, there was a there was an anthology film, even pre-Robot Carnival and pre-Animatrix, called, in the West, they called it Neo Tokyo. And it was three mm-hmm. directors, and Kawajiri directed one of the shorts. I think it's about 12 minutes long. And it's called The Running Man. And it's about a futuristic race car driver in these very dangerous races and how he dies and how he's kind of cursed to circle this track for the rest of his life. Mm. Super cyberpunk, gorgeously animated on cells. One of them, I watched it last night again, one of the most beautifully animated, timeless things, but you could see Kawajiri's style, his character style is very striking and very specific. And that really, that style hearkening back to Running Man, the Running Man. And the way I saw it, Kyle, was... They actually played it on MTV. Just that one. All three shorts in Neo Tokyo are gorgeous. One's by Rintaro. One's by Kawajiri. And I'll get you the other director's name. Oh, it's Katsuhiro Tomo directs the other one. And The Running Man is one of the most beautiful things. But MTV somehow leveraged it briefly for inclusion in Liquid Television. So they played that short on Liquid Television, which is interesting because it's 12 minutes. So it was half the show, over half the show when they showed it. And that's what exposed me to Kawajiri. And when Ninja Scroll came out, I was like, that's the same guy. And you could see it specifically in Genma, that very blocky, very specific character style, very striking, a little off-putting, like you're saying, yeah, that weird. Jay Leno chin. Yeah. Not really a departure from typical anime, very much like Katsuhiro Otomo in that or Studio Ghibli, in that it doesn't look like anything else. It really is inherently a lot of its own its own thing. It's its its, its own style. But Genma is awesome because I feel like he's a proper payoff. You know, he's that final boss that we're waiting to meet again. In watching the the film progress, we see the backstory and the bad blood between Jubei and Genma, and we know it's all going to come down to this final showdown with these two guys. And I love. That Genma, sometimes called Gemma, but I think it's Genma because if I'm not mistaken, Genma is demon. Yeah, Genma is is demon. Right, in in Japanese. So Gemma wouldn't really make sense, but there is this translation calls him Gemma in the in the sub, which is not which is not good. I I have a lot to say about manga entertainment. I wasn't a big fan of those guys. But um I love two things about this guy. His size is awesome. And the fact that he's sort of achieved, we, we find that he's sort of achieved immortality, seemingly. I think Dakuan is the one who tells Jubei this by harnessing the power of regeneration. So you can't kill this guy. He's, un, he's essentially unkillable. And in the past, because he, the, the 
Jubei and Genma were in the same ninja clan, and Genma betrays Jubei. So Jubei is forced through the actions of Genma to basically slay his entire clan in self-defense, ending with beheading Genma. So Jubei's like, how can he even be alive? I cut his head off myself. So apparently somewhere in the throes of time, Genma put his head back on and then got his regenerative of powers. And I like the fact mm. that he doesn't fight with a weapon. He just has that iron arm, right? Like his gauntlet that he basically defends himself and he fights with hand and fist. Now, does he have a human arm? Under Why didn't that arm grow back? I don't know. It's not important. It's just cool that he has no, a metal arm. Definitely. Um, so super, super cool payoff. And I love the whole confrontation at the end. They don't even talk a lot. They just know it, it, it's all come down to that. They're like, you know, this is it on the ship while the ship is burning, while it's sinking, while the gold is melting. It's a nice little showcase set piece battle yeah, at the end. You know, and this movie I, I is really built on set piece battles, yeah, really. Definitely. Another video game thing. And I, I, I absolutely I, uh, I dig the ending too. It reminds me of the ending of another much newer game. I will not say what it is because I don't want to spoil it for people. But in watching the ending, I was like, I wonder if they watched this. That's interesting. But I did dig. Uh, and by, oh, I actually I should say this first because I wanted to look this up just to be sure. Um, on uh, I'm on an just an, a random college website. Genma is a transliteration of Japanese terms. Genma is widely used in various Japanese cultures. There is no single interpretation that can define the term. When written in kanji, it literally means a great illusion and generally represents the supernatural power or the person wielding such power. The literal translation of demon or devil is Akuma. Akuma. So just we know who to that, throw that out is. there. Stay your swords, weebs. Stay your swords. <laughs> All right. I wanted to talk on this as well because Ramon, I, as I said, I was watching this with my best friend Ramon. Ramon's a professional musician. And he said like 15 or 20 minutes into the movie, he's like, this movie's sound design is nuts. And Jeff Rogers wrote in and said, hey, boys, I remember renting this movie over and over at our local video store in VHS. Finally, in the year 2000, we got a computer with a DVD-ROM and a surround sound speakers. I immediately drove to Best Buy and bought this movie because the sound design in the movie is intense. Nice. The whirling blades and the tree scene and full surround sound are so incredible. This was my first DVD and my experience with surround sound. I was absolutely blown away. I actually got a girlfriend because of my sweet setup and this movie. What? One of my favorites of all time. Can't wait to hear what you guys think of this gem. Thank you, Jeff, for writing in. Thank you, Jeff. What do you think about the sound design? It did stick out to me, too. I'm not usually a dude who notices that stuff too much, but it stood to the forefront to me. And once Ramon identified that, I was like, well, it must be the real deal. And then we got this letter from the audience that I wanted to read that too. Did, did the sound design stick out to you at all? It's beautiful. Right from the opening moment where the spear pierces the bottom of the bridge. Now, I have to say, don't watch the... First of all, it's so strange to me that you could have bought that there was an era where you could buy this in Best Buy. It's like so off my radar. It's like, you know, having to get a pirated copy earlier on and like... Yeah, man. Times change, I'll tell you. It really did. You know, in that whole mall store, like I always think of Trigun specifically, like Trigun era of anime where you could go into like an FHE or Best Buy and buy anime. It's so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I kind of missed that whole period. I missed out on that whole period, really, because I was just out of it at that time. But yeah, the sound design is gorgeous. First of all, the music, the musical score is amazing because it's really traditionally steeped in something that you think you would hear in historic feudal Japan. But it also has like a rousing cinematic, I don't know, like deepening to it, you know, where it's like, it's kind of brought up a couple of levels. 
in almost a modern day cinematic movie theater way but not in a way that offends or seems like at a period where it's like all of a sudden it's metal or hard rock like it still seems appropriate for the time but it's just kind of brought up it's just kind of lifted a little bit which i love and the sound design is just gorgeous from the weaponry to the elemental stuff to footsteps it's 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 a cut above most anime that you would hear maybe even cinematically but i have to say for you guys don't watch the manga video dub of the sound because it's very garbled it seems like the whole thing is like underwater or brought down a couple of notches in level like it seems like it's like it echoes a little bit it's strange Mm. so if you can watch the sub or watch it like Colin did on Hulu, I think you'd be better off than watching it on DVD. I think there, there's got to be a Blu-ray of this as well. I'm sure that there is. I was a little confused by the Hulu one, though, because it's in 4.3. The movie certainly isn't in 4.3, Oh, it's in 4.3. Right? Yeah, that's Because when I was watching, I was like, was this made for TV or something? That's I was, I was like kind of confused because it wasn't even Letterboxd or anything. So yeah. I'm not even sure that I saw like the... F- but that was the only version that, that was available on streaming services. Because uh, I did PlayStation's, you know, Universal Search, which I love. Yeah. And that's the only thing that came up for me. I couldn't even buy it like a la carte on Amazon. That's such so a nice I like to buy things a la carte when I can just to kind of show a little bit of support. But but I wasn't able to uh, to do that. Now, Dig, I wanted to wrap up talking a little bit more about one of the things you had brought up earlier. And, and it's kind of the thematic nature of the of the movie. And by the way, quick shout out to the sound of the uh, of the staff, like the jingling. Oh, staff the, so uh, cool. I love that. Did you but, know those staffs? Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to tell you the name of that yeah. staff. OK. Um, I it's wrote a type, this it's down. a weapon, right? Is it a type of weapon? It's 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 called a shakujo, Ooh. and it's a staff with rings. Traditionally, I think it was a Buddhist priest or Buddhist monk type thing. But I read about oh, it okay. that those rings were designed. It was designed for for combat, but also to ward off wild animals when you were walking or hiking. So that sound was made to to ward off like I think it's called like it's also called like a tiger staff because people used it to ward off the, you know, that sound would be off putting to an animal and make them run away, which I never I knew. See. Interesting. Which is super fascinating. Cause you yeah, see that, cool. you know, you see those in every martial arts film of the, of the eighties and nineties, you know, hell's wind staff and all that kind of stuff. So it was cool to get a little piece of like actual, well, supposed actual history behind it. Yeah. It, it, very nice. It, it, I wanted to just give that a quick shout out as well, but I think the biggest thing that stood out to me other than just the myriad video game parallels which we've gone into depth about is what you had brought up earlier, which is this really interesting thematic marriage of feudal Japan before the West broke them open, you know, Commodore Perry and all that uh, in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, as everything kind of started getting broken up, broken out over there. And the, the mild, well, it's a little more, it's moderate maybe in this, but a mild to moderate supernatural element. There's something really interesting about that. And I think I said on a recent episode that I've always been fascinated by the thematic and fictional potential of like an American Revolutionary War story told where Native Americans have some sort of arcane power that they're either use or protect or are trying to obfuscate the existence of. And there's just something really great about that because I love things that feel grounded, but certainly aren't, but take themselves pretty seriously. Like this movie's not corny or campy. No, I agree. And that is a different sort of thing. Like Metal Gear Solid, I think even is campy. Yes. This didn't seem campy. And I think that they really threaded the needle really nicely here. I'm wondering as we close out, if you have any 
further thoughts on that because I, I just think that's such an, an awesome way to enhance a world is to to familiarize a person with the world but say like there are elements of this world that will surprise you absolutely and i think that that's really cool because it makes it its own character basically absolutely you know it's a hard balancing act too when you're trying to make something cool and grounded and just compelling without crossing over into that corny territory or campy territory unless that campiness is intended like so often we think it is in kojima works for instance i love drawing this whole thing up to kojima and yeah this movie does it really well there's one very brief corny spot in the last 10 minutes of the movie where Jubei's I don't want to I don't want to ruin it Jubei's avenging at the end right because I want you guys to watch it that haven't watched it and he puts on the headband you know what it is and he rips his sleeves off <laughs> there was absolutely no reason to rip his sleeves off his gi right or his right, robes right. it was ridiculous it was like I get the Rambo First of all, I love when the Japanese reference Western pop culture in some way. And sometimes they take it really far, you know, in an ad in in an admiration sort of way. We see that so much with like Blade Runner, for instance, they'll just leverage Blade Runner in their content, anime or live action, whatever, in just the most obvious, unapologetic way. But it's always in reverence to it. You know, it never feels it never feels like it's parodying. It feels like, like a loving nod. But sure. the Rambo thing with the headband I got, but you didn't he, he didn't have to rip his sleeves off his robe. That was that was ridiculous. Yeah, it's a bridge too far. It's for a bridge you. too far. But that for the most part, it's great. Like, and I love the fact that again, all the mysticism and all the so-called ninja magic is kind of believable. You know, manipulating wild creatures or insects or poppy flat you know poppy yeah, petals. It's, it's naturalism it's like a, na- a level of naturalism i love I, lo- I mean yeah, i love that I and you know what the other thing is kyle i love drawing mm. up this discussion and tying it in with video games because that was a big bullet point in my notes and i think it's important to talk about in pop culture too because like you said there's that chicken and egg effect but i think we have to think back even to things i wrote down a couple of things that would inspire this sort of boss battle level set piece mini boss leading up to the big boss model and there's a couple other things i thought about there's that old older kung fu flick that was really referential in wu-tang's content called the five deadly venoms where it was like these five characters each leveraging a different animal's abilities right and then you have something even in a western flick big trouble in little china sort of had that model too where it's like you were getting you were going through the various lieutenants or even something like we covered on the show already like the warriors where it was like some sort of and that was in the 70s you know some sort of progression to get to your goal in that case to get home have to fight through these different neighborhoods these different gangs to get to your and then fi- you know finally face that ultimate big baddie at the end which was the gang member that betrayed them into, you know, would-be murderers when they didn't do it. You know, so there's all those referential things that I wonder how those things played into, you know, coming out of the one-bit Atari games and coming into 8-bit games where the boss thing started to really take effect. Like, how many of those 8-bit games or those Japanese game companies largely leveraged the entertainment that already existed in the 70s and 80s for that thing? So it is interesting. And then you think about this, you think about anime, you think about big things like Ninja Scroll, and then you think about huge, 
you know, things that sold millions and millions of copies like Kojima games and how, you know, it kind of brought along, it was kind of brought along. And, you know, Kojima's interesting. He's fascinating too, because he'll talk about on his social media about the things that are inspiring him at the moment, whether it's a piece of music, an album. He talks about food a lot, talks about film a lot. He'll talk about television series. He's really into foreign film. He seems like a pretty filmic dude. Like he's obviously pretty steeped in culture and pop culture. So, you know, you could always kind of, it's interesting to kind of track that thing from all the heavies, Kawajiri, mm. Katsuhiro Otomo, Kojima, you know, what's, what's Miyamoto looking at when he designs a, designs a game. So it's kind of cool how everybody, everything fuels everything and how it's also kind of global. You know, it's not just beholden to Japanese video game and anime. You know, it's it's sort of everybody's, you know, it's it's got its tendrils, it's got its tentacles and everything. Not its testicles. Not, not it, it doesn't have its testicles in it. Please don't get involved in that. <laughs> we don't want that. Are there any other closing co- comments, Dave, before we, we wrap up our discussion about 1993's Ninja Scroll? You know what? It, it's so funny. Like, Ninja Scroll sort of came to me in my life, you know, earlier than a lot of people in the West discovered it, but I'm not bragging. I only mean to say that as it was kind of like a confluence of media at the time and everything seemed to be taking a page out of this. Like I think about Neo Geo's or SNK's Samurai Showdown series where you could see the Samurai Showdown games very similar in tone and style to Ninja Scroll, where you have these sounded, you know, these grounded samurai feudal Japanese type characters, and then it's kind of paired with this mysticism, technology a little bit, maybe you know, a little sci-fi in order to excel that out of the period of feudal Japan and just make it a little more fantasy like. I think of like the crossover between those two things. Like you think of a character like Shijima and how much he reminds you of Genma from, or Gainon. I'm sorry, Gainon from the Samurai Showdown games. And there's even a little Easter egg in this that I discovered a long time ago where it's the scene where Kagaro is cutting her top knot off in the dojo and she's saying she's going to go out on the mission and the other ninja are trying to compel her to stay because she's her important role as a poison tester and she cuts off her hair and she's like i'm coming with you on this mission or whatever there's a little easter egg yagyu jubei who is the eye-patched samurai who fights with two katanas in the samurai showdown games he's he's sitting in he's one of the characters sitting in the dojo or in the in the in the house while Kogaro's kind of lashing out at the rest of the clan. That's super so. interesting, and and so that's like a confirmed thing. That like yeah, they, no, they, I don't think it's even a confirmed thing, but it can, it's it's the same character. It's the eye patches on the same eye. It's the same gray robes. He doesn't say anything. He's just an extra, basically. But why would he be that. in there? And then cool. there's that character, caffeine nicotine, who's like the Buddhist priest or Buddhist monk, who looks exactly like Dakwan. You know, he has the big hat, the big straw hat, the staff. So it's it's really interesting to see those cultural crossovers again with video games and anime and manga. You know, that everything was sort of, and I guess that's just the, kind of the way it ebbs and flows stylistically. You know, there's trends like in everything. and um, it, But it's interesting to go back and look at the early to mid 90s and see all of that taking place. You can even see that in Capcom's games with Street Fighter sure. and certain character 
certain character traits, certain physicality that they put in there, and of maybe course, proportions. Of course, Dan. Of course, Dan is a oh, Dan, as Dan. a Joe character in the other direction. Dan, the of, famous nod to no, you what, know, it was super. Or it was. This was a fun topic because yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm really grateful that we got so many write-ins about it too because this is one of the ones that is a li- like you said earlier, a little less obvious of those mainstream anime movies. And I often wonder too, like I was already an anime guy before and after this film came, but I definitely saw it put anime on the map of people that maybe weren't fans prior. But I wonder like, this is a special type of film in terms, not only of quality. And I think that imparts a certain timelessness, but also in terms of content, right? It deals again, very um, deftly with feudal Japan, but imparts those sort of fantasy elements, the mysticism, but also the sex and violence. And I wonder if people sort of got into anime via a film like this, same thing with Akira, right? It would be a similar thing. And then said, okay, like I want to consume more anime. Like I'm in, like, let me do the next thing. And the next things weren't quite the same in terms of quality or content. And if a lot of people sort of their kind of brief flirtation with anime only lasted as far as this movie and finding out like all anime is not like this. You know what I mean? Maybe it was a gateway for them, a gateway drug into anime and they, they, they were all in for what they discovered, but maybe I can't help but thinking like maybe it was a disappointment to discover the next thing because it wasn't quite up to the standard of content or quality of a Ninja Mm. Scroll. Or Akira. I would love to find out more about that from people who maybe thought they were in, but they were like, oh no, like 99% of the things I'm discovering are not up to, you know, quality or content of the things that I'm looking for in this where, you know, maybe everybody's like, this is super metal, like sex and violence and everything. And then the next anime series was overly cutesy or, you know, much less quality in the animation shorter episodic maybe it was too much of a time investment to get into a whole series even an oav series so i wonder about that you know where it was like you were you were along for the ride as a young kid because you were already subjected to it in your own living room but i wonder about that you know where it was Mm. like you know and now you can get away with so much more it was like x-rated anime was like a thing i had that on my lists from the pirates that i got these things from but now X-rated anime is, you know, you can watch it on Funimation and shit. You know what I mean? So it's interesting to know how much anime has changed and having this conversation and writing the notes and sort of getting ready for this and prepping for this also got me thinking what's going to be next. Like we got to do Ghost in the Shell eventually. But then it's a hard thing because I want it to be a certain, I can't just do something that's more niche or more obscure like some these topics for knockback i feel like have to have some sort of you know place in the mainstream ish or be influential a certain degree of influential in some way so it's going to be interesting to see where we go after a thing like ghost in the shell but i highly recommend you guys go out and watch this and neo tokyo the anthology film that i was talking about earlier with rontaro kawajiri and katsuhiro otomo i mean all three shorts are like, they'll blow your mind. They're so good. And something that came out in the, in the late 80s, I believe, dude, it's, they're unbelievable. And you can even watch on YouTube. That's where we're Excellent. at now. Yeah. You know? That is where we're at. Very exciting. Well, 
I'm glad we did this topic. It was good to watch the film in, in whole. I hope people out there enjoy it. They can give you a lot of options of what to watch. And if you want to watch Ninja Scroll, you can do so, so on Hulu. But if you want to go watch the Blu-ray or DVD, you'll have to track that down yourself. Dagan, as we always do, let's end our episode of Knockback with a dad joke. A dad joke. Let's go, my friend. Kyle, why do dogs float in water? I don't know. Because they are good buoys. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I love that one. I'm so thrilled. One. You know, you think after a few years of doing the show, doing a dad joke every episode or two, that you're going to run out of dad jokes. I'm going to tell but, you right now, there is no end to yeah. dad jokes. No. We could do this show There's for not. 300 years and it's not, we're not going to end it. So be grateful. Something to be happy about in the, these yeah, no. uncertain it days. Is. You know? Yeah. Look forward to the dad jokes is what I'm saying sure. to you. Sure. You know what I mean? Embrace it. Appreciate that. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for your love, kindness, and support uh, of all of our topics here and, and the care you put into these things that people really love, especially these animation jump-ins. And, and of course, thank you a lot there for your love, kindness, and support of our show, all things Last Stand Media and Knockback. Uh, that's it. That's all we have. We'll see you on Patreon. Watch us on YouTube. Watch on or listen on podcast services. Leave us nice reviews. You can always tweet at us. DM us on Patreon. Etc. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Henry Groth, Joshua, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Hallen, Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Isabella Hope, Top G82, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, Jim Bob, 56, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Keegs, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Andy Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algarit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, 
Scotland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K, Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, James Kinsler III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rhodes, Lockmort, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondhaliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Codero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.